This audio recording includes excerpts from the Ground Truth Briefing on North Korea, organized by the Wilson Center on April 13, 2020. I will now turn the call over to the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Operator, and good morning uh, to many on the East Coast. Uh, I assume good afternoon or late evening uh, to some in the Far East, and uh, maybe there are others tuning in from all over the world. We have had hundreds of people, hundreds, literally 700 in one case, uh, dial in for the uh, Wilson Center's um, uh, ground truth briefings. This is, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm precisely right, it's almost our 150th of these, and they are with experts around the world, including our own experts, uh, who are uh, on enhanced uh, telework uh, in the Washington area and would be uh, at the Wilson Center itself, if uh, and could be actually, but would be if if health guidance uh, suggested that. I'm very interested in this one on. Uh, what's happening inside North Korea, a place I actually traveled while a member of the House uh, Intelligence Committee some years ago. It is called the Hermit Kingdom for a reason. Uh, very little information gets out. Uh, it claims that there is no pandemic there, but we'll see what our experts have to say. And surely uh, everyone on this call agrees that uh, this pandemic is a world pandemic, and experts uh, say that some places, including North Korea's neighbor, South Korea, has been uh, having some uh, better results. Uh, we've been hearing quite a bit about this. Um, I was just talking to Jean Lee, who will be on this call, uh, and she says that the statistics out of South Korea are accurate, so I don't want to steal her thunder. We'll hear about this in a moment. Uh, what is less certain, as I have just said, is what's happening on the other side of the DMZ in North Korea. This is a country, um, no one has missed this, that shares not only a border with South Korea, but a long border with China. Um, if it has no cases of COVID, it would make it just a, one of just a handful of countries claiming no COVID-19 infections and the only one bordering a country where the virus is believed to have origi originated. North Korea has dealt with the coronavirus by shutting the world out. The country has closed its borders and has withdrawn from its friends and its foes. What do we really think is happening? Is it credible uh, that there could be no cases? And what about North Korea's economy, which has relied on trade, both illicit and illicit, from China and has been squeezed by U.S. sanctions? As COVID-19 has spread, Kim Jong-un has overseen a number of short-range ballistic missile launches in violation of the U.N. Security Council. What, uh, uh, one of those missiles landed near Japan. What do these tests mean? And how is he able to do this at a time when he might be confronting this virus? So we have experts on this call who have spent time on the ground in North Korea, and they will help us unpack what might be happening there, both in terms of public health, politics, and diplomacy. Uh, at the Wilson Center, we take pride in our ability to look at North Korea from all angles, including the on-the-ground perspective. As always, we'd like to thank Hyundai Motor, Korean Air, and the Korea Foundation for their generous support of our Korea Center work and research on both Koreas. Introducing our speakers and moderating our discussion today is the Asia Program Director, Abraham Denmark. Before joining us at the Wilson Center, Abe served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense 
for East Asia. He's been watching North Korea closely for years from a security perspective. He will have most certain he will most certainly have an opinion about the latest missile tests from North Korea, but possibly about the whole the whole situation. Please join me in welcoming Abe, who will introduce our panelists, and I think you've been told that you are muted on this call, but if you'd like to ask a question, you should dial star one, and if that's incorrect, Abe will correct me. Good morning, Abe. Good morning, Congresswoman Harmon. Thank you so much for uh, the remarks. Thank you for getting us to such a good start. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for joining us this morning. This is Abe Denmark. I'll be moderating today's discussion. We have three uh, tremendous scholars and uh, people, who, uh, each of whom has on-the-ground experience in North Korea, and we'll be talking to them each in turn. Let me, I'll have some uh, brief introductions before we uh, begin the discussion. We'll turn now to Edward Wong. He's a veteran journalist for the New York Times who has served as bureau chief in Beijing and Iraq and reported from dozens of countries around the world, including from North Korea. He's currently working for the Times as a diplomatic correspondent based in Washington, and we're pleased to have him at the Wilson Center as a fellow in our Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Uh, Edward. Thanks a lot, Abe. I appreciate it. Um, so I'll cover a little bit of um, ground on uh, U.S.-North Korea relations, uh, diplomacy, and um, international sanctions. Um, you've heard uh, Katarina had some great remarks on some on-the-ground um, perspective about the sanctions, and I think that that's a central question around North Korea at this moment. So. Uh, obviously, humanitarian aid and whether it's able to get through to North Korea is a big question, um, as well as whether there are cases of COVID-19 in North Korea. Uh, some U.S. officials with whom I spoke recently say they do strongly suspect there are cases. I think there might be intelligence showing that um, there are some in North Korea, even if the government hasn't formally acknowledged that yet. Um so given that, there have been a lot of questions on whether the U.S. plans to ease sanctions to allow some humanitarian aid to get through more easily um, or to allow uh, more economic aid to get to North Korea um, and to help out with commercial prospects there. The short answer is that there's been no substantial change to the U.N. sanctions on North Korea, and the U.S. is not pressed for any changes. Um, as we know, there were five rounds of major sanctions that were imposed on North Korea, starting with the late Obama administration and going through the first three years of the Trump administration. These were the five rounds that Kim Jong-un and his negotiators pressed Trump to lift more than a year ago at the summit in Hanoi, which ended um, with no uh, conclusion. Um, so last April, we know that uh, Kim... Uh, said that he wanted the Trump administration to lift sanctions or at least to ease sanctions substantially by the end of the year. And at the end of December, U.S. officials were, were wary of what might happen. They suspected that North Korea would try a major test of an ICBM or maybe a nuclear warhead at some point. Um, they, and we saw Trump go on Twitter and uh, and trying to admonish uh, Kim for any, uh, over any thoughts of this. Um, but what happened was that, not, that there was no test. And so this year, before COVID-19 hit, 
Trump had taken the attitude that North Korea wasn't presenting much of a problem as long as they did no major testing and that he could somehow, and that his goal was to somehow make it to um, the election in November without having uh, tensions ramp up with North Korea. So even though North Korea was continuing to do short-range ballistic missile tests, the Trump administration wasn't prioritizing uh, North Korea as an issue, and it wasn't going to take action on those tests. Um, at the same time, it wasn't going to ease tension, tensions either, even though North Korea wasn't following through with any threats of, uh, of testing of ICBMs or uh, nuclear warheads. There is some suspicion in Washington that maybe what happened in December is that China intervened and got North Korea to rein in any actions that it might take um, that would then uh, threaten Trump and his chances of re-election. Um, so starting early this year, we saw that Kim sent some signals that uh, he that the era or the period of working closely with the U.S. was over. Um, but at the same time, nothing strategically has changed. changed. Um, they've continued to do some short-range ballistic missile tests, but we haven't seen any major testing from the ICBMs or nuclear warheads. And the and again, that that hasn't changed the relationship substantially. Uh, when COVID-19 did hit, the State Department issued an interesting statement, a very brief statement that said that they wanted to work with North Korea on aid and to help North Korea um, if there were problems there. And I think um, I'm told that um, Steve Began, the Deputy Secretary of State, who has been the main U.S. negotiator on North Korea, he saw COVID-19 as a chance to try and reopen dialogue with Pyongyang. Um, they, he had sent signals last fall to try and get some form of dialogue going. And the two sides had met in Stockholm in the fall, but things fell apart during that meeting. It was a very tense meeting and nothing got accomplished there. Since then, there has been no high-level discussion between the U.S. and North Korea. And I think that Began was hoping to leverage, um, you know, COVID-19 uh, as an opening for talks with North Korea. But so far, as far as I can tell, there hasn't been any response from North Korea um, directly to that outside of, you know, an exchange of letters with Trump. But again, that isn't really reopening dialogue. The, um, uh, as Katharina mentioned, there has been some, have been some exemptions of aid from the UN, um, for aid, exemptions for aid from the UN. And they did this recently, for example, with the batch of aid from Switzerland. Um, the National Committee of North Korea said that that process took two days. So I think that in some respects, the UN is trying to uh, work to get some aid through to North Korea. And they apparently have a team that's reviewing the situation in North Korea right now. Um, the borders have generally been closed. There is um, some allowance of crossings at the Dandong to Nuju border, um, land border up uh, in northern uh, in the north of North Korea and in northeastern China. And then apparently the, there was a water crossing that was open, uh, reopened recently between Dali and Napo. Um, 
one thing that uh, the Times has reported on is that there's been a uh, slowdown in commerce that North Korea was conducting in open waters around it and also in Chinese territorial waters. And I think that this was um, – that commerce is controversial because it, a lot of it was interpreted as violations of UN sanctions, but we've um, seen satellite images recently that show a lot of North Korean ships idle at ports and along the coast of North Korea. So that shows that that commerce has fallen off recently. The um, a UN panel had been set to release a report on North Korea that showed uh, violations of sanctions throughout last year, including, um, you know, the sale of coal to Chinese companies, the sale of sand to Chinese companies, and also cyber theft that was being conducted on international banks and cryptocurrency sites. Um, so right now we know that the ship-to-ship transfers aren't happening um, to any large degree anymore. Uh, and there's a question as to whether the cyber theft is still going on. Um, and I think that's where we stand right now on sanctions. So uh, I'll leave, um, you know, further details for Abe and Jean and Katharina to expand on. Thanks. Great. Uh, thank you, Ed. Uh, I want to make sure that we're uh, leaving enough time for Q&A, so I think uh, I'll turn things, I'll go over to, to the next speaker, to Jean Lee. Uh, for those of you listening who do have questions, uh, you can get into the queue uh, by typing in star one, uh, just as a reminder. Uh, Jean Lee is a Pulitzer-nominated veteran correspondent who began visiting North Korea in 2008 and led the Associated Press's coverage of the Korean Peninsula as Bureau Chief from 2008 to 2013. In 2011, she became the first American reporter granted extensive access on the ground in North Korea, and in January 2012, opened the AP's Pyongyang Bureau. We're delighted to have her at the Wilson Center as director of the Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy. Uh, Jean, over to you. Hi, thanks, Abe, and thank you so much to Katerina and to Ed for joining us. They covered a lot of ground, um, and I'm happy for that because I have to apologize in advance. I have a bit of a fever, so I'm not at 100 percent, but um, so I will just provide a little bit of analysis uh, to supplement what um, Kathy and Ed have been talking about, and really just to make a few points about why we should care about how North Korea is dealing with COVID-19. We're not clearly, we're seeing North Korea saying that they have no cases, but I want to bring into discussion why we should be concerned uh, about North Korea's isolation. Um, I just wanted to mention a few things. We have uh, 1.8 million confirmed cases in 185 countries since uh, Chinese authorities first reported the outbreak in Wuhan in late December. And just to put things into perspective, South Korea and the United States reported their first confirmed cases about three weeks later, around January 20th. North Korea then sealed its border in late January uh, and instituted those restrictions that Kathy mentioned. Was that enough to stop COVID-19 from reaching North Korea? Is it possible that they really have zero cases? Uh, I think that we should always question the veracity of information coming from North Korean state media, from, from North Korean officials. One thing that I noticed is that among the other countries who say that they have no other cases, there are some island nations, I think that's 
perhaps it is possible, but also Tajikistan and Turkmenistan are mm-hmm. other countries who say they have no cases. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these three countries, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and North Korea, are at the very bottom of rankings issued by Freedom House when it comes to uh, political freedom and um, press, uh, the flow of information. Uh, unfortunately, there are very few foreigners in Pyongyang right now, and even those who are there, they would have very little opportunity to interact with North Koreans, as Kathy mentioned. Um, the North Koreans, as we all know, are extremely good at restricting access. Access. I don't know that we have any foreign journalists on the ground. Probably not. And so it makes it very hard for us to uh, understand what is accurate and what's not, and to get a real, a good reading. Um, I just want to build on what um, Ed said in in reference to U.S. officials. We did have General Robert Abrams, Abe Abrams, commander of the U.S. forces. Uh, in South Korea saying that he thought that was an impossible claim and that was what he said in an interview with Voice of America and CNN um, recently. So I'll just, the quote, his quote was, I can tell you that this is an impossible claim based on all of the intel that we have seen. We're not going to reveal our sources and methods, um, but that is untrue. How many? I couldn't tell you. Uh, and so just to give you the latest on what General Abrams thinks about COVID-19 in North Korea. So we, we, we may never know how many North Koreans have died, uh, but what we do know, as Kathy has pointed out, is that a wide swath of the population would be extremely vulnerable to an epidemic like COVID-19. Just from a public health standpoint, more than 40% of the population is, um, is undernourished, according to the World Food Program, and I would refer you to the World Food Program's latest needs and priorities report for more details about uh, about the um, state of the population. Uh, and we know that those with underlying conditions don't fare well. We've heard this in the United States. Uh, Kathy mentioned tuberculosis. Uh, the, the World Health Organization estimates that some 131,000 North Koreans suffer from TB, thousands dying every year of the disease, and thousands also developing multi-drug-resistant TB. Um, I would refer you to the documentary Out of Breath, about the Eugene Bell Foundation uh, for more information on this topic. Um, I had hoped to screen that here at the Wilson Center before COVID-19 put us on lockdown, but hopefully we'll be able to get um, some of those doctors on a call in the future. And I, I have to say that I know firsthand how limited healthcare is in North Korea. Over the course of my reporting, I visited a number of medical facilities, and this is from uh, the top hospitals in Pyongyang um, as recently as 2017 to local clinics that were run by women where they told me they had no medicine. Um, I still remember one clinic where uh, the doctor told me they didn't even have the medicine to stop diarrhea and that diarrhea was the main cause of death in her community. And so you can just extrapolate and imagine um, how difficult it would be for them to cope with an epidemic like COVID-19. As Kathy mentioned, every facility is spotless, and that is true for every single healthcare facility that I went um, into. But only one of them had running water. They did not routinely have heat or electricity or even soap. Uh, you see from the pictures that I posted on the event web page that even in the hospital, they just had basins, water basins. So uh, very hard to maintain the kind of hygiene that we are advocating 
uh, here in the United States to stop the spread. So forget about ventilators. They don't even have soap or sanitizer. Um, and this is changing, and I, I think Kathy can provide um, some more information on this. On my last trip in 2017, uh, the doctors were very proud to show us that they had a hand-washing station outside a, a surge, an operating room, which they had installed at the insistence of American doctors. So I think that we will start seeing changes. Um, I just wanted to make a point that it's true that sanctions have made it very difficult for uh, medical North Korean hospitals and clinics to import what they need. Uh, but I think it's inaccurate for uh, the North Koreans to place all the blame on the United States uh, because I do believe that the North Korean leadership bears the ultimate responsibility for making the decisions uh, that that do tend that do end up putting their people in jeopardy. So, for example, uh, talking about why the sanctions are in place in the first uh, place, um, the North Koreans are continuing to test ballistic missiles in violation of UN Security Council resolutions, as we've mentioned. Uh, and I just wanted to point out that I believe it's that short. I think there were eight short-range ballistic missile tests in the last month alone. Uh, and then when it comes to to the delivery of aid, I just wanted to make the point that we are seeing some relief in terms of what sanctions waivers, but I would I have some concerns about the risks we take in handing aid over to the North Koreans and allowing them to take those materials without any foreign monitoring. Um, we did see that the Swiss declined to carry out distribution because they didn't have any foreigners on the ground. I do think that by handing that over and not allowing foreign aid workers to monitor their distribution, to vouch for where they go, that it could set a dangerous precedent and make uh, create a, a situation that would be would bring some more difficult sanctions down the road. So I think the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights was absolutely right in calling recently on North Korea to allow for allow for full and unimpeded, unimpeded access to medical experts and humanitarian aid workers and to relax restrictions on access to information. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm starting to fade a little bit, so I want to quickly talk about the political implications because I think that's harder for us to understand. Um, I want us to take a step back and talk a little bit about, build on what Ed was talking about, and remember that when COVID-19, when this crisis started unfolding globally, this came at a time of incredible political uncertainty in Pyongyang. Uh, and just to put things into context, remember that Kim Jong-un had put so much into his relationship with President Trump. And as we know, that did not yield the deal that he had hoped for in Hanoi in February of 2019. I do think that he was struggling to figure out how he was going to gain the upper hand in his negotiations with the United States, as well as how he was going to regain public confidence at home. And so I think what we're seeing right now is, is his calculation on how he's going to address those two different areas, both the external and the domestic. And in terms of the United States, it was always my, it was my belief that he it is my belief that he wants to get back to the, those negotiations eventually, but in a much stronger position than he had in Hanoi. And so he will use this time 
This, this crisis buys him some time to carry out some testing while the rest of the world is distracted, while President Trump has negotiations with North Korea on the back burner. It doesn't surprise me that he hasn't responded to U.S. calls. He wants to have a little bit of that isolation so that he can carry out some testing and make some improvements. So when he gets back to that negotiating table, he's in a stronger position. Um, and then at home, I think regaining public trust after the failure of his negotiations with President Trump meant that he had to come up with a way to show his people that he was on top, that he had them first and foremost, and that he was on top of um, policy. And this public emerging public crisis has given him that opportunity in a sense. Um, he has shifted, in a sense, to uh, domestic priorities. And an interesting announcement that he made is that, that, that everyone would have to drop what they're doing and work on building this Pyongyang General Hospital in time for his big 10-year anniversary of his public debut in October. That's um, the 75th anniversary of the Workers' Party. And, um, and so that's a positive development in one sense. Whether the resources will be allocated toward medical care that will help all North Koreans, not just members of the elites, is something that we need to watch for. And so I just wanted to uh, put that uh, political perspective, um, bring that into our discussion. And I do think that the isolation of North Korea is very deliberate. Their own self-imposed isolation is very deliberate in order to buy time to work on the nuclear program. Uh, it also allows him to shut the world out and to bring the people together in a kind of unified battle. Uh, but it does mean that we may not know the extent of the spread of the infection, if in, indeed it has, as General Abrams believes, reached North Korea. And we may never quite know what the toll is, both on the economy and the, the everyday lives of the North Korea, as well as on, their, on um, the uh, on the, the public health sector. And I'm sorry, I am starting to fade, so I'm going to leave it there and um, let Abe take over with the Q&A. Great. Thank you, Jean. This has just been a really a fascinating discussion. Uh, we're going to turn to the Q&A section. We have 17 minutes left on this session. Uh, for those of you who, who are listening in who do have questions for our speakers, please type in star one on your phone to get into the queue. And for the first question, we'll turn uh, to Congresswoman Jane Harmon. Jane. Uh, thank you, Abe, and thank you to the panelists. First of all, Jean, would you please go to bed? Um, I'm not sure what you're doing on a panel with a fever in this circumstance, um, but I'm not your mother. I'm just your colleague, so please go to bed. Uh, you've heard it from me, and I hope everyone on the call will put pressure on you. Uh, okay, that's my, my comment. My question is this. I think Kim and his father and his grandfather have had one priority, or, or their top three priorities, have been regime survival, regime survival, regime survival. Uh, and uh, I think there are two prongs to this. One is uh, their nuclear capacity, and we've heard a lot about it. I'd be very interested, Abe, in your insights on that. You haven't shared them yet. The other is somehow keeping their people quiet and feeding you know, a, a top tier of folks and starving everyone else. I have seen no evidence, including when I was there, that, that anything is different. So here's my question. If massive numbers of North Koreans starve or die from coronavirus, 
is anyone in a position to do anything about it? If I'm assuming they won't do anything inside, but outside North Korea, it sounds like no one's in a position to do anything about it except a few NGOs who are selfless and wonderful, but uh, on a serious level. Is there anyone out there? Does somebody uh, want to answer uh, Jane's question? I know there's been some speculation among officials tracking this that China might be sending aid right now to North Korea through channels that are, you know, that the U.S. doesn't closely monitor, that the U.S. isn't on top of. Um, because, as um, Kathy says, the, it's in China's interest, you know, to continue supporting North Korea, to support the government, and also to make sure that there's no mass outbreak um, of COVID-19 in North Korea and to sort of try and help control or mitigate any spread of the disease there. <clears throat> that's uh, that's um, what I'm hearing. And I, this is Jean. I was just going to jump in to say, um, make a point that Russia, the foreign ministry, did announce they sent 1,500 diagnostic uh, COVID-19 diagnostic test kits to Pyongyang. I would ask one of the reporters out there to follow up with with uh, Russian officials to find out if they attached any stipulations to to get any confirmations on that. But clearly, we know that Russia is will, although they've been reluctant in recent years to invest too much in North Korea, they will step in. They, they do share a border with North Korea, as does China, and will step in from time to time when they need to or when it's politically advantageous, so when there's a public health concern or when it's politically advantageous. And, and Jane, uh, to answer your question on nuclear and missile issues, um, North Korea conducted nine ballistic missile tests in March, more than in, in any other previous month. Um, and even despite all the diplomacy that, existed between Kim Jong-un and President Trump, there's been no freeze put in place on North Korean missile activities or on its nuclear program. So um, throughout all this time, North Korea has been free to continue to build up nuclear weapons, continue to improve on its missiles. Um, the, the Pentagon actually just put out a report, I, I believe it was uh, last week, maybe two weeks ago, on nuclear deterrence in which they uh, state that North Korea has conducted increasingly sophisticated nuclear and ICBM flight tests and poses a threat to the U.S. homeland and to our allies. Um, so my, my sense of about why they continue to conduct these tests um, is to both remind um, the region that, and the United States that despite what's been happening with uh, coronavirus, that they're still there, they can't be ignored, um, and that they are going to maintain deterrence. Um, the other piece of it, uh, to my mind, is that since President Trump has been fairly clear that he would not tolerate more nuclear tests or um, ICBM tests, but has been tolerant of the shorter-range missile tests, is that this has been rain, uh, rope that the president has given North Korea, uh, despite the threat that these tests pose to our allies and to our U.S. forces in the region. Um, and uh, Kim Jong-un is going to use it, is going to take up the space that's been given to him. Um, whether or not that holds, whether or not Kim Jong-un continues to respect this line that the president has drawn as we get closer to the election, uh, I think is very much an open question. Um, I appreciate I, that, and I, I just would say, Gene, go to bed, but also, uh, Abe, um, President Trump announced early in his tenure that he thought uh, there was no problem with South Korea and Japan nuclearizing. And so this may play into an agenda that he has, or at least he had. I think the tragedy is uh, that people in North Korea are exposed, and we don't know how much, but let's assume a lot. 
And in addition to that, uh, Kim is not fully contained. He's expanding testing of missiles that at least let's call them our allies for now. Uh, and he has tested longer range missiles and he has, uh, nuclear warheads. And, uh, this, this whole thing, despite the fact that the president said early on North Korea was his top priority, uh, is colossally worrisome in the world. And so I'm so glad the Wilson Center keeps a keen eye on it. Gene, go to bed. I'm getting off the phone now. Thank you, Jane. Thank you so much. Um, and um, the, the only piece I'd add on to, to Jane's comment there is that we are still in negotiations uh, with South Korea and with Japan on their host nation support agreements. Uh, and the negotiations with South Korea have actually um, been, uh, been dragged out, and, uh, although they appear to be stalled right now. Um, moving on to our next Q&A, uh, we have uh, Yun Jung Cho from The Voice of America. Operator, if you could patch her in. Hi, um, thank you so much for doing this very important discussion. Um, I'd like to ask you about the magnitude of a full-fledged coronavirus outbreak in North Korea, just like every other country in the world. Um, could we compare this to an unprecedented outbreak, unprecedented humanitarian disaster in North Korea, as bad as the arduous March period? Because um, Ms. Zellweger did mention about the coping mechanism in everyday people, but how could everyday people get hold of the test kits and the vaccines and the ICUs and the ventilators? So what do you think is the magnitude of a possible full-fledged coronavirus outbreak in North Korea? What's interesting, and I think that maybe um, Gene can probably interpret this in a much clearer way than I can, but the, we know that there, this past Saturday there was a Politburo meeting in Pyongyang that was chaired by Kim Jong-un, and, he, and the very top thing on the agenda was discussing the country's preparations and efforts to prevent an outbreak of COVID-19. And so there's acknowledgement that there's risk to the country, but it's unclear, you know, what the extent of any cases that are occurring right now in the country. In the, I reviewed the statement that they issued after that meeting. It, there's no sense, there's no acknowledgement that there are any cases right now in the country. And I think, I'm sure Gene has a better interpretation of, you know, how that meeting went. Uh, one, one observation I would make is I think that oftentimes we in the U.S. might underestimate how other countries have taken very effective measures to prevent the spread of COVID-19. That includes sort of um, authoritarian countries in Asia. So leaving China aside, since that's a special case where that pandemic first started, but if you look at a country like Vietnam, they've had very effective steps in terms of controlling um, outbreaks in their country. And a lot of it is because they're able to quickly impose uh, regulations uh, throughout the population that the population has to follow. And I don't, and I, my assumption is that Pyongyang is able to do that, even though we don't know operationally exactly what's going on on the ground, but that they can take very similar measures. So I don't think we should underestimate, you know, the level of distancing that they're able to impose on the population. This is Jean. I'm just going to jump in to make a couple more comments um, that we may never know. We did have a former North Korean soldier speak to us recently at the Wilson Center in a private session, and he was very he had expressed some concerns about what would happen if there were infections within the military. Uh, and so mm -hmm. this is certainly something that Kim Jong-un would be on guard and concerned about. 
Um, I did want to follow up on what Ed said. The Parliament did meet on Sunday, and so we're starting to get readouts. I was just studying that morning. Uh, we are seeing that they've raised their... So the North Queens, when they when they publish the information in state media, and this is always the case, they will tell us the percentage of how much they're spending, but they won't tell us the actual amount. So we, know, we, we don't know the size of their budget, but we know that they're spending, they're allocating a little bit more money to defense, and so this is something that those of us who are looking at security issues should be aware of, uh, and also uh, more of a percentage of the budget toward construction and public health. I do always have a little bit of caution when I see construction because, as I've written and reported, I do think a lot of these construction projects are designed to boost uh, Kim Jong. A lot of them are propaganda projects and showcase projects. Uh, If that money is spent toward basic infrastructure, I will be happy. If it's spent on tourist projects, I will not be happy. So I think that I'm always looking at how are they spending their money? What are they building? Is it going to help average North Koreans or is it designed to uh, support and keep the elites happy? Uh, so we'll take a closer look at those numbers, but uh, we are seeing that a higher allocation of the budget is going toward defense and construction. Thank you all very much. We have time briefly for one last question. Uh, we'll turn things to, uh, quickly to Andrew Yo from Catholic University and uh, ask any respondents to please keep their remarks short. And then we just have a couple minutes left. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, this is a, just bouncing off the last comment. Given how catastrophic COVID-19 could be for North Korea, I'm wondering what incentives the North Koreans have for not reporting the case of COVID. We know that they're taking it seriously based on the measures, but I mean, I assume it's for some sort of uh, propaganda win domestically or even internationally, but you know, given the the, the consequence of this, I don't see why they don't have an incentive. If they do have a few cases to not report that, because they could get assist, more assistance from China or Russia or somewhere else. So I don't, maybe if Jean or Katrina could address that question. Thank you. This is Jean. To admit to something like that would expose the vulner, vulnerabilities and the would expose the lack of resources that have been allocated toward that sector. And so this is, in a sense, Perhaps it's Kim Jong-un trying to get ahead of that, and by reallocating some of the resources toward construction of the hospital, as I mentioned. So I, I think we're about to wrap, wrap up, right, Abe? I just wanted to make just um, offer a few more resources for those of you who are interested, and I'm so glad that there are people who are interested in what's happening in North Korea. Um, NCNK, the National Committee on North Korea, does put out regular briefings and updates on the aid situation and the flow of aid in and out. So please take a look at that. Uh, and I, want, I did want to mention that USIP is having a session tomorrow uh, with the executive director of NCNK. Uh, so perhaps he will uh, provide a bit more information about that. I just wanted to mention a few more of those resources that are out there. And Abe, go ahead. Great. Well, I just wanted to thank all three of the speakers for participating today. I uh, to thank Congresswoman Harmon uh, for giving opening remarks on our first question. And for the, all, the, all of you listening, thank you very much for calling in. We'll be having more programming, both about the uh, geopolitical implications of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, but also about all the other security, economic, political uh, issues happening all over the world, including on the Korean Peninsula. But thank you all for, very, for tuning in, and have a good day. That does conclude today's call. Thank you for participating. Please disconnect at this time.